This episode has been brought to you by Worldwide Soba, a Japanese noodle production company. This week, Team HRN is at Charleston Wine and Food for the fifth year in a row. So, on this week's Meet and Three, we bring you some of our favorite sound bites from last year. The hospitality here yes. and the camaraderie is really wonderful. Yes. That's what's struck Everybody me. smiles. So, imagine if you mix dirt with sand. Yes. You've got our earth. Yes. That sounds like that would be really poor. Really poor, conditions. right? <laughs> you know, we can talk all we want about a good story, but a good story is useless if the wine isn't great. It's highly Instagrammable. It looks so gory. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, in the woods, mostly alone. It's good to get out of your comfort zone. Sometimes you just need to go out in the woods with 60 pounds on your back in sub-zero temperatures, look up at a mountain, and start walking. In January, I did just that. Along with a few friends who go winter hiking every year, we set out one morning, drove to Randolph, New Hampshire, parked at a gas station, and headed up Lowe's Path onto the side of Mount Adams in the Presidential Range. As we made our way up the steep, icy trail, it started to snow, and then to get dark. So we donned our headlamps and eventually made it to Nirvana, or what passes for that when you've just physically exerted yourself in the cold. Grey Knob is a cabin four miles up that was originally built in 1905 as a summer cabin by the Hinks family. It is now operated year-round by the Randolph Mountain Club as a stopover and respite for hikers in the White Mountains. When we shook off the snow and entered the cabin, we were greeted by Benji Getrer, who's one of two caretakers at the cabin. He works seven days on and seven days off. Sometimes, like the night we were there, 15 hikers sleep in the upstairs of the cabin and fill the place with conversation, music, food, and snoring. Sometimes he goes a week at a time without seeing a single other person. We got on the phone during one of his weeks off the mountain to talk about the mountains, Grey Knob, food while camping, and more. Hope you like it. Hello? My name is Benji Gutrer. I currently work as the backcountry caretaker for the Randolph Mountain Club. Um, I take care of a few cabins that are high in the woods on trail in the White Mountain National Forest. I've done, people often ask me how I got this job, <laughs> and I've done a lot of other work in related to outdoor recreation. Um, some of that started for me in the same region I'm working in now in the Northern White Mountains, doing trail work with the Appalachian Mountain Club, um, my aunts and uncles taking me up to go on you know, hiking and then some overnight trips in that in that region of New Hampshire, and that's kind of where my original love for being outdoors in the mountains came from. And so, I've taken sort of a long path doing other things, but it's been cool to come back to that same area now to uh, to work. Yeah, it's really. I mean, it, it is a season. it's a breathtaking area. Um, I met Benji, or we met when uh, I visited Gray Knob, which is one of the 
the cabins that you take care of. It's actually where you live when you're up there, right? Yeah. Um, um, a few weeks ago, I was I was hiking up there uh, with a couple of friends, and it really is a, a breathtaking and amazing place. I think it's very easy um, for those of us that live further south in New England or further, you know, on, on in the East Coast or even as you move into like the Midwest to forget that we have real mountains on this side of the country. Um, you know, obviously there's the Rockies and the Sierras and, you know, everything out West. Um, but you know, it is, there are real mountains in New Hampshire. They're, they're definitely real mountains. And I've worked, I've worked, uh, the past three summers, I did, um, research work out in, uh, the coastal range of Southeast Alaska. I did, a, I worked for the forest service in the Sierra Nevada and, um, just outside of next to Lake Tahoe. And I work in the Northern Rockies in Idaho, and I everywhere I go gets my mind is compared back to the standard of of the Presidential Range in Northern New Hampshire because that's what for me like mountains are. Right. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of the big things that that I find as an interesting contrast. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. Um, I you know I've done some hiking out in the Sierras and out west. I mean, you know, the mountains certainly on the whole are taller. Uh, than we have right. in the Northeast. Um, I mean, the Mount Washington and the presidentials being the tallest. Um, and I always find it interesting that out West to get to the top, people have created switchbacks um, where you kind of yeah. zigzag up and down the mountain. Um, and in the Northeast, I, you know, I don't know if it's just like the gritty uh, kind of like New England history or what, <laughs> but we just, you know, people, the, the trail goes straight up pretty much. Yeah, that's definitely true, especially on the side of the of the presidential range where I'm working now. I don't think there are any trails with switchbacks. <laughs> there are a few places in, uh, and elsewhere in, in the whites that have switchbacks, but I mean, a lot of the times it seems like they hiked up a stream and painted blazes on the trees as they went. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, uh, it's very different. Yeah, somebody described it to me out west actually as, as having to do with the fact that the mountains were more um traversed by like mule trains and stuff out there um and yeah. that people are able to go kind of straight up a mountain but a mule is not i don't know if that's yeah true there's not, there's definitely a lot of truth to that i think another thing is that out out west through the mountains the, the paths were created to get from one point to another for very practical reasons whether it's to just travel through or, be, or, you know, to establish a route to access, you know, a gold mining uh, claim, um, a, like a, a trading route, something like that. Right. So a lot of the, the paths that exist now were, were built by the first sort of, um, like, um, like, like, European-American colonizers out there, and they built, built them for a very different reason. The paths up Mount Washington were built on, basically only for recreational hiking. Right, right, because there was something tall, and we wanted to get on top. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so your life at the at the Gray Knob cabin. Um, tell me a little bit about how that works. So, you're one of two caretakers, and you each are on for a week and off for a week, right? Exactly. So there's there's two of us that are the, that are employed to work the same job, um, and we kind of just switch off. So. One of us will be will hike up to the mountain um, while the other one is hiking down and just swap places. And when you're off for a week, you have no relation to, you know, you're not doing any work for the club, really. There's oftentimes, you know, things that you might have to get done in your off week to prepare for coming back up, um, but you're not paid or, or have any, like, formal responsibility. 
and then when you're up there for the week, you live, um, you know, two, about two thirds of the way up on the presidential range, just below tree line. You hike in all of the supplies that you need for the week, all of your food, all of your uh, clothing, all of your equipment and gear, and you stay up there for seven days, um, taking like, taking care of the ca- of the cabin and the hut and different equipment up there, doing uh, weather reports for the U.S. Forest Service and for the Randolph Mountain Club's own um, kind of weather reporting, and uh, welcoming and kind of uh, assisting all of the guests that might come up during the week to that stay over at the hut um, on their way, either hiking higher above onto the ridge or just kind of exploring around in that section of the trail. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to, you know, for people who are listening who who haven't had the experience of going up there or sort of visiting these sorts of huts, um, you know, the job is not one of, uh, I don't know how to describe this, but like, you know, you're not there in a kind of a service capacity. Um, you're there just to kind of help say, you know, okay, you can choose a spot to sleep upstairs and here's where you need to cook your own dinner and here's where you get water and here's where the latrine is and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Know, it's not like staying in a hotel. Um, but No, but... <laughs> no it's, it's not like staying in a hotel. And that's right. Like the, the caretaker job is primarily there to serve the facility in yep. a way while other people are using it in more of a self-service way. Although there's definitely an aspect of, um, you know, in some ways of customer service. I mean, we collect fees from yep. the people who stay there and answer questions and, you know, try to try to help out in that way. But it's definitely a self-service kind of deal to the place. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I was definitely, um, you know, I, I, was, I was certainly like, it, it was really it is a great service that the Randolph mountain club, your employer offers with having that hut. I mean, you know, there are a couple of even more primitive lean tos, um, on the mountain that the, that you're responsible for upkeep on and that sort of thing. But just having a place that is staffed by someone who is knowledgeable, having a place where, you know, you can get out of the weather, um, because the weather up there is super intense, um, or can be super intense. And, and having a place where you can kind of connect with other people who might be out and about. That, for me, was one of the most interesting things, being there. You know, the, the night that I arrived, I think the three of us were the last three to come in, and we took the last three spots. And there are spots for 15, yeah. 15 people to sleep, right, in that cabin? Yeah, 15 is the official, the official number. Um, we, can, we can overflow by, by a little bit comfortably, and if there's really bad weather, then we'll accommodate people like that. Sure. But, yeah. And I think that's a that's a in trying to capture the 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 feel of of the huts up there. I think that you you touched on some really good points, which is that it's not just about having a place to sleep. It it creates this sort of like shelter, physical shelter from the you know wilderness and intense weather and exposure that's around you. Um, but also allows kind of a space to connect with other people. And I think for a lot of people to connect with the mountain in a way and and the experience of being outdoors and hiking in a way that has room for a sort of like emotional personal like connection that's maybe a little bit more difficult or that people don't really get the same way when you know you're you're freezing cold in the rain you know having that place to come into and and that is consistent when you return to it um and that really feels almost like a home up there i think is really neat 
Yeah, absolutely. And and the ability to to meet with other hikers, you know, the morning that we went out to try to summit Mount Jefferson, there was a group of five who'd left before us and we ran into them above treeline when the weather just got totally nuts. I mean, things just got really intense uh, and, you know, basically they had turned back and warned us that things had gotten a little crazy and that they were turning back. And so we decided, you know, to give it a shot, but ultimately we also ended up just turning back. And so just having that kind of uh, connection, camaraderie, ability to talk with people, I think was really valuable. One of the things that I love, I had, because I haven't, previous to working this season, I haven't done a lot of winter hiking in the White Mountains. There's something really neat about going on a hike and changing your plans because, you know, the weather is too intense because it's a whiteout snow and too windy. There's something that sort of it gives you a very certain different sort of connection and, and understanding of uh, the elements that you're out in <laughs> when it's not just, you know, a sunny, warm summer day and you're going to, you know, do your hike and then come back. You can sort of start the hike with expectations, but you have to be willing to kind of change because Mother Nature really is in charge up there. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I want to make sure people also understand and, and sort of touch on is the fact that there are no reservations. So unlike, you know, people might be familiar with like the AMC, the Appalachian Mountain Club, where you can make a reservation months in advance to kind of come right. in uh, and, you know, and use their facilities. The Randolph Mountain Club provides none of that. Yeah. Right? So you For just basically, part, whoever shows up first pretty much is whoever gets there. I mean... You know, whoever gets, yeah. you get a spot by showing up first, not by making a reservation. Yeah, and for the most part, we don't ha- we we don't have to turn people away. Um, actually, this past weekend, we had 16 people who were already trying to stay at the hut, and towards you know midway later towards the afternoon, a group of like seven people showed up. Oh no! Um, which is close to the maximum group size that we really would let stay at the, at the right. cabin. Um, and there was just no way that, 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 it, that it made sense. And um, there were people who had been there many times before, and by the time they got there, knew that there was a chance that, you know, it might be filled up. Right. But it was, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough when you have to feel like you, you can't accommodate people who hiked all the way up there in, in the hut that they want to stay at. Right, right. And there is another facility not too far away, right, where people Correct. can stay. Correct. And in the summer, it's a, it's, that's actually the more popular facility is Craig Camp, which is a larger hut that um, sits right on the precipice of, of King Ravine, one of the larger uh, um, glacial valleys draining the upper slope. But in the winter, that hut is, is very cold. It's not insulated or heated. So, Right. Right. And, and, and Grey Knob has has heat i mean but not it is not it, it has heat but it's not heated to keep the people warm right it is it is heated to dry out the hut uh and to make sure that the building doesn't rot right that's the that's the primary in, investment i guess when it comes to the heating it definitely also um, is part of the experience I think that people like to come up for. I think that way fewer people would come if it wasn't heated. And then if no one's, if no one's coming, then there's not really, uh, there's less reason to have the cabin at all. So, so it kind of affects both ways. But yeah, definitely the primary function of the heating is to, is to keep, um, keep the cabin dry 
and uh, and to keep the you know yeah to keep the the actual facility in better shape. But the other the flip side to that as well is that you really have the most like moisture in the cabin. The, the times where you want to you want to heat the cabin are just when it's packed with people. When there's right. just one person there, it it doesn't, it doesn't you know you don't have that many people cooking, breathing, you know, sleeping. It doesn't really get that humid. Right. Right. For sure. I want to touch on, um, I guess, kind of like what happens when nobody shows up. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think the day that right. we arrived, you had mentioned that there hadn't been any guests in the cabin in 11 days. Well, yeah, that was one of the, that was the longest stretch we've had this winter. But um, yeah, it's an interesting an interesting job in that way. The only reason that there's a cabin there and that there is a caretaker there taking care of the cabin is so that is, is for the, to serve, I guess, the, the general public that, that that would come and use it. And in the fall and winter, it's open, you know, 24-7, 365, but, but in the fall and winter, there are days on end where you won't see anyone and no one will be there. Right. And, um... Yeah, I guess there's there's there are aspects of it that are very practical of like, well, you know, your your the duties of the caretaker kind of change when there's people there versus when there's no one there and the rhythm of the day. And there's there's also just aspects of that that are very kind of emotional and psychological where um you know, you might you might hike up on a certain week at the at the beginning of a 7-day shift and you know, just based on patterns that you've seen and 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 other things, you, know, you you realize, wow, I'm probably going to see very few people for the next seven days. And right. uh, it's not something that everyone necessarily would like, and it's definitely something that um, people react to react to differently. And you don't, I definitely didn't know really how that would feel or how I would react to that when I took the job, because <laughs> sure. <that's> <laughs> it's not some an experience that people necessarily know how they would react to. Right. Right. So, you know, what, what does a typical day look like for you up there um, with your, you know, with, with your responsibilities? I mean, I, one of the things that I certainly noticed um, was that you were responsible for checking the weather and letting right. any, any hikers who were staying know what the reports were for the summits um, and any precipitation uh, and right. the temperature, obviously. Um, and I will, you know, I will say that, you know, for anyone considering to go up there, it really, it's totally worth it. It's really awesome. Um, but know that, like, when you arrive, if you arrive in the evening like I did and the stove is on and you get in and you're like, oh, this place, oh, God, it's so warm. It's so great. Uh, when you wake up in the morning and the outdoor temperature is negative three, uh, you know, you're probably talking about it being in the 20s in the cabin. Right. So, right. you know, understand that, like, it's much better than being outside, but it's still quite cold compared to what you might be used to. Um, but you also do things like track snowfall, right? Yeah, so the weather and, and, and snowpack are the two kind of primary responsibilities first thing in the morning. Um, so in the, in the winter season, I wake up at between 5.30 to 5.45, in the morning and I and the first thing that I do is I go outside and and take several measurements of the snowpack that I report to the United States Forest Service Snow Ranger program in, in, out of the Androscoggin Ranger District and 
that information includes um, the total height of the snowpack at our little snow plot area, um, the sort of current weather conditions, you know, how, like is the cloud, is the sky overcast, is it cloudy, is it clear, um, is it snowing, is it raining, is it sleeting? Um, and if it is currently snowing, then you report on, you know, what type of crystals the snow is, how big the crystals are. Um, then you, we have two different snowboards, and we report on how much snow has fallen in the past 24 hours, how much in this, and like if there's a current storm that's passing through, how much um, of, of that total, how what is the total at the end of that storm, and all that information goes to the snow rangers who incorporate that into their understanding of and sort of uh, communication of avalanche risk across the northern presidential. So some of the larger um, ravines that drain the upper slopes on the northern presidential mountains are extremely steep and rocky. They get a lot of wind-blown snow um, that's filled in the tops of them, and that creates uh, some unstable um, snowpack conditions where you can have a big block of snow resting on, you know, an icy layer underneath, for instance, that uh, then, you know, a little bit of pressure comes on, like weather conditions warm or change a little bit, and it can avalanche. So uh, folks who go out skiing or, or ice climbing definitely want to know um, about those conditions, and the Forest Service um, uses that information to better communicate and better understand avalanche risks and dangers right. uh, in the area. And then, so I wake up at 5.30 and put on you know, boots and kind of stumble in the dark an hour and a half or so before the sun is going to rise yep. and, and it's freezing cold and maybe it's snowing and I should go do this. And, uh, I don't think I ever really look forward to it, but I'm definitely, it's definitely one of the, in, in a weird way, one of the better parts of the job because in the winter when it's dark and it's cold and there's, and if there's no one there, there's, not a lot always to motivate you know you to get up and start the day right but having something that you, that you have to do that you have to that you're reporting immediately to somebody else like there's like that kind of like um responsibility immediate responsibility to someone else who's you know counting on on you to do the job it really helps get get you out of bed and get you you know kick start the day and in a way that a lot of the other responsibilities of being a caretaker don't don't have or don't have that sort of you know if there's nobody there then there are a lot of things that have to get done but they don't have to get done first thing in the morning and there's no one waiting you know for for you to do it necessarily sure so it's sort of a i like that part of the job even though i don't i rarely look forward to it (laughs) if that makes sense i imagine it must be a pretty decent way though to get yourself at least a little bit warm first thing in the morning as well i mean there's nothing there's nothing better i mean Staying still in the cold is about the worst thing you can do to stay. Yeah, cold. the easiest way the easiest way to to get cold in that in the cabin is to stand next to the stove waiting for you know water to boil for your coffee. Yeah. It will freeze. You're, you'll you'll it's just <laughs> that's what you want to do when you when you like stumble out of bed, but it's not a good way to be warm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This episode has been brought to you by Worldwide Soba, a Japanese noodle production company. Founded by Shuichi Kotani, Worldwide Soba offers noodle consulting services in addition to supplying a variety of tools for wannabe noodle makers. Want to take a class? Worldwide Soba has it. 
Need a traditional Japanese soba knife? Worldwide Soba has that too. To learn more, visit worldwide-soba.com. So let's talk a little bit about your kitchen setup there. Um, yeah. in, in the cabin. Um, I remember, uh, one of the, one of the gentlemen that I was with remarked one morning, he said, gosh, who made pancakes up here and then realized that it was you. And so obviously you've got a little bit more of a, an intense setup. That's not just like a little portable stove and like, you know, one right. pot, like a lot of the hikers do. Right. One of the perks of being the caretaker is that, uh, you don't have to carry up a stove and fuel every time right. you, you, you go to work. Um, they, they stash the cabin with a three burner propane stove and, uh, propane tanks for the caretakers when they're working. And, um, that's the, pretty much the extent of the cooking setup that I use. We actually have, um, a propane powered, like mini oven that Hmm. is much less fuel efficient um, and I actually haven't tested out yet, mm-hmm. <laughs> although although I've I've heard that it does in fact work. Right. But for the most part, most of most of my cooking and food preparation is on uh, the three burner uh, propane powered stove uh, stove top and um and like a big cast iron. We've got some pots and some some other pans, but for the most part, it's it's you know a big thirteen fourteen inch cast iron pan. Yep. Um, and so do you have any like favorite meals that you like to make up there? I mean, you're cooking just for you, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's kind of shifted different, different from week to week sometimes or from month to month. Uh, more recently I've been making a lot of quesadillas. Huh. You can, I hike up a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables and nice. stuff like that just because I, I need that stuff. Yep. <laughs> there's, there's only so much that you want to eat out of a, out of a can or dehydrated until you, you want something to spruce it up a little bit. So I make quesadillas that, you know, I'll hike up some, a can of refried beans to then have cilantro or, you know, fresh onions, tomatoes, peppers, things like that to, um, to throw in there and fry it in butter. <laughs> and and uh, those are awesome. Although, honestly, I've, I've eaten so many of them that I'm kind of getting sick of them now. <laughs> but those, for a while, that was, that was my go-to meal. I eat a tremendous amount of peanut butter and jelly, um, and I don't get sick of that. I don't think I, I will ever. It's delicious. <laughs> it's, like, very protein and carb-heavy. You know, make yourself a big peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and yep. it's got enough enough sugar to to uh, satisfy sugar cravings. Um, but I, think, I think some of the stuff that I've enjoyed the most are soups that I've made up there. Uh, I made I made a, a pumpkin soup. I hiked up a pumpkin for Halloween and carved it into a jack o' lantern. And then when it was when Halloween had passed, I made pumpkin soup. Nice, it was amazing. <laughs> we were discussing <laughs> uh, when we were up there about how food tastes better above four thousand feet. Way better. That like just about anything you could possibly eat, and you know, uh, you know, definitely, um, you know, for anyone who like is interested to try that out. I definitely challenge you to like take a bite of something down at like, uh, you know, at, on the road and then hike up Lowe's path up to gray knob. Um, I guarantee you the food will taste better when you're at gray knob. Absolutely. And 
and not just you know food that would taste good down below, but right. food that you wouldn't that you wouldn't want to eat. You know, like you know, like peanut butter and jelly in a you know flour tortilla with hot sauce and and like you know sliced up onion. It's like <laughs> no one in their right mind would eat that. But like you could, if you made that after after a hike up there, you'd be like, oh, it's so tangy and sweet. It's amazing. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's definitely, uh, it was, it was an intense hike, uh, up there and certainly in the winter it's intense. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what you see people bring into the cabin. So, you know, the, the, the couple of days that I was there, um, you know, I felt like really, I saw people that kind of ran the gamut, um, of what I would call like, you know, what people would normally bring for hiking, uh, food. So, you know, there was one pair of gentlemen who really had like, you know, they were very, um, what I would call like normal modern hikers where like they had all freeze dried stuff and they had, you know, meals in a bag where you just pour in hot water and you let it sit for a few minutes. And it's like the lightest thing you can possibly carry. Um, you know, and it's like chicken teriyaki rice that's been freeze dried and, you know, that stuff crosses over, I think, into kind of like doomsday prepper territory. Um, you know, (laughs) yeah. And bunker like, uh, survivalist. Totally. Um, you know, but that's like, you know, that's, I've seen that a lot on the trail where people are like, I, you know, if people are out for a week or two and they are carrying everything with them, you know, weight is a huge issue if you're going on a really long trek. So, you know, you don't want to carry any more water than you need to, if, you know, if you're, yeah. if you're going to a place where you're going to have decent access to water, um, you know, yeah. and then, and then myself and the two guys that I was with, you know, we were somewhere in the middle of that. Like we brought, uh, you know, for one night's dinner, we brought couscous and for the other night we brought rice and beans that was dried, um, in a, in a package. And then we brought up some frozen peas and frozen corn, figuring it was going to be cold enough that those things would stay frozen outside. Uh, and we brought some sausages to add into it. So, you know, we brought stuff that was like, we knew it would be really delicious. We, you know, we knew we were going to a place to serve as kind of a base camp. So we didn't feel like we needed to like carry everything with us as light as possible. Um, but we wanted to eat pretty well. Um, and then there were, there were two guys who showed up the second night I was there (laughs) and like, I felt like they brought like a steakhouse with them. I mean, they had like, they made soup and then they had, they made like, they brought shrimp and they made shrimp cocktail and they had steaks that they were cooking, um, which felt incredibly extravagant to me. Um, I mean, that's stuff that I like might cook at home for a special occasion, but I would never dream of schlepping up a mountain. Yeah. Um, so like what, I mean, are there are, like, what, what are some things you've seen people show up with that you either thought, oh, that's a good idea. I could use that next time I go on a, on a trek myself or things that you've seen that people bring that you think like, I would never ever have thought of carrying that up this mountain. Yeah. People, there's, there's a huge range. Some people show up with, with, you know, basically only single serve, uh, pre wrapped, pre, you know, made food that they're going to heat up. Um, people who show up with, you know, a little thing of like instant ramen and like a granola bar. I've seen that. And wow. it's not that that wouldn't be good. Like, it's just that it's not a lot of food. <laughs> right. That doesn't seem calorie dense enough to me, no. uh, given, and, given what I know about the hike up there. And then if you're going to be out for another day or two around that area. Yeah. The amount of exertion that it takes to, 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 move, to move out and about, especially when there's deep snow. And then just the amount of calories that you need just because it's cold. Yep. I worry sometimes when people don't bring, uh, don't seem like they have a lot of food but then like you're saying the flip side of that are people who bring up 
multi-course meals and none of it is pre-packaged. It's all, you know, like, I mean, there are people who've shown up where they have dinner from like 4.30 to like 9.30 and there's a round of crackers and cheeses and prosciutto and, and hors d'oeuvres that they're like, that they're both preparing and making, but also sometimes cooking. Right. And, and they've got their stove going for, you know, about three hours, you know, swapping out fuel canisters so that they can braise, you know, meat and, and in these pots and they're filling that hut with smoke. And it's just like, you know, somebody's trying to make cheese fondue in like a tiny little aluminum, <laughs> like can on a canister stove <laughs> that is not very well adjustable. And it's just like, what is going on here? Right. <laughs> like, you're, like exactly like you're saying, like meals that I uh, would be an ambitious undertaking to do in a proper kitchen at home. Right. <laughs> and, and they've carried it all up and are, and are, you know, breaking out the wine bottles and the, and it's just, it's just fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, good, you know, listen, good for them. I mean, I, I love to cook and I love the idea of, of doing interesting things um, when you have the yeah. opportunity to um, outdoors. One thing I, I would like to note if anyone is thinking about going up to Grey Knob is that um, you guys don't allow white gas stoves inside the cabin. Yeah, that's definitely a, a message I think that's been going, kind of been going out for several years that some people... Um, might not, might not, just might not know, or might not have looked for it, or you know, previous caretakers may have enforced it differently. But yeah, a primary reason for that in Grey Knob are the fumes, and a strong secondary reason for that are just um, problems with with stoves where you ha- where you have to compress the gas yourself. Yeah. Um, because it usually requires to prime. You have to prime your stove, um, which means in this case, you know, filling a, a little bowl of with liquid fuel yep. and lighting it. Um, and burning that off to heat the, the stove element so that the uh, so that the compressed liquid gas will flash to um, well the liquid will flash to 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 gas phase before it comes out of your stove and you can cook on it normally. And there's all sorts of ways you can imagine somebody screwing that up, and you don't want to screw that up indoors. You know, three and a half miles up a snowy icy trail in the wilderness. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I I think that for I like those kind of stoves. I don't know, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's it's not something that we we can let people do inside of that cabin. Yeah, so just be aware if you're headed up. Uh, the gentlemen who were cooking the the steakhouse dinner on the mountain uh, had to do all of their cooking outside um, when it was snowing <laughs> and and you know head, yeah. heading towards zero degrees. So uh, yeah. they got to sleep in the cabin, but they had to cook out in the cold. So. Um, I want to talk just briefly, uh, I want to touch on um, safety in the mountains. Um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the presidential range, um, you know, is, is known as having the worst weather uh, in America or possibly in the world. Um, yeah. And, you know, even in the summer, it can be somewhat dangerous up there. Although, you know, I mean, I imagine the hike up to Grey Knob in the summer is is a strenuous hike, but not, you know, not nearly as difficult as it is in the ice and the snow um, when it's really cold right. outside. Um, but I'm curious just to hear a little bit about, as someone who, who spends a lot of time there and is employed on the mountain, um, you know, about safety. Um, you know, I definitely, you know, 
everyone who's coming up there is essentially an adult and we all are responsible for ourselves and it's not your responsibility and wasn't uh, your responsibility to make sure we were safe out there. Um, but I just would love to, to hear your thoughts on safety out, out there, especially in that location. Yeah, it's definitely something safety and risk management are things that I think about constantly up there and partially for other people, a lot for myself, sure. but also just sort of in the abstract, you know, because it's an activity. Nobody, nobody needs to go up there, <laughs> right. but everybody's choosing, everybody, everyone who's there is choosing to go up there and there's an inherent risk when, whenever you're hiking, but there's a much more significant risk in the winter where if something were to happen where you would need assistance, it can be much more difficult, dangerous, or just impossible for somebody to get to you in any sort of time, time frame. Um, and so for me, who's, who's up there constantly, uh, for, you know, while I'm working, I'm up there for, you know, 24 hours for seven straight days. And I'm doing that every other week, month after month for, for, you know, a couple of seasons. All of the risks, all of those, um, you know, risks that you that you that, ha- that are just inherent in the job. You know, I'm going to hike, you know, 1.8 miles over to this other camp and, and back as part of, you know, the, the duties that I have to do. Or I'm going to go out for a hike up to the ridge because it's a beautiful day. When there's nobody else around, any sort of repercussions from those from those risks, and this goes for other hikers, you know, not just the caretaker, but yeah. when there's no one else around and it's the winter. Anything that goes wrong becomes a huge problem. Yep. And the more you're up there, the more exposure you have for that risk. So even if the likelihood is kind of low, you're just compounding that a lot by, by being the person who's always up there and who, who is getting day after day is, is exposed to the same risk factors. And so safety, you can't think like, oh, it probably won't happen to me. Right. <laughs> you have to think like, oh, this could like it's, it's going to happen to anyone. Like it's, it's probably going to happen to me. And sure. how am I going to balance those, those risk factors or, or how am I going to prepare myself so that if something goes wrong, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Right. And it's, uh, yeah. For, so for me, it's, I, I think about that all, a lot. And I really think about the questions about what drives people to come up to begin with, because that I think has a lot to do with people's mindsets and what they're trying to get out of the experience of hiking has a lot to do with the kind of decisions that they make and the situations that they put themselves in. Mm. Um, you know, there, there are people who just hike up to the cabin because it's a beautiful walk and, and it's strenuous and exciting and the cabin is it's very picturesque and, 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 they, and they just like the whole experience of it and they, you know, make their food and they go to bed and the next morning they hang out and then they walk down. Right. Um, and that sort of experience, and, and, and this isn't just people who only go to the cabin, but there's a sort of aspect to that that's very much about um, just being out there and but um, and enjoying the experience. And there's, and there's another kind of aspect of people who come up with very specific goals of, of something that they're trying to accomplish beyond this sort of experience, whether it's I'm going to hike up to you know Mount Adams, which is the second highest peak on the range, um, well over 5,000 feet and, and, you know, miles of exposed tra- above tree line trail between just between the cabin and, and the top of that peak. Like that's a serious undertaking and people who want to, you know, go from, you know, hit a bunch of peaks that are all a few miles apart. There's, 
there's an aspect to that type of hiking, which is a type that I also do and, and feel compelled by in many ways, where the the goal inherently is some sort of, you know, testing yourself against a against a uh, natural metric and seeing how you measure up against, you know, this test that you've sort of devised for yourself. Getting to the top, getting to the top through such and such conditions right. and when you're and when you're in that kind of mindset or and and there might and sure there's always you know a balance of, of the of the two maybe but that type of mindset especially makes makes people make different types of decisions <laughs> that aren't necessarily always in their in their favor yeah i mean i i think you know there, there was a there was a i mean I say kid because he was young, he seemed young, but uh, you know, there was, I think, a, you know, probably 19, 20 year old who showed up the second night I was there who said that he was going to leave at, you know, one thirty in the morning because he wanted to see sunrise from the top of Mount Adams, um, you know, and, and seemed experienced and, you know, seemed to have all the right gear to do that. But everyone around was sort of like, why? Like <laughs> given the conditions that you weren't going to see the sunrise, I just don't understand, like, why would you put yourself into the position of that kind of risk? Um, you know, I can, yeah. you know, wait until a day where you are going to be able to see the sunrise if that's really your goal. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, we all, like you said, you know, people do these things for different reasons and the same people do the same do, do the same hikes for different reasons at different times as well, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, for me the reason I went up there was because it was a challenge and because I had never done that kind of serious winter trekking before. Um, and I wanted to be away from electronics and, you know, <laughs> electricity yeah. for a couple of days, uh, and just be up there in the woods and, you know, and, and look around. So, uh, you know, that's why I did it. But, you know, also it was very, and it is the risk management thing. I mean, like I said, when we got towards Edmonds coal, which is between Mount Adams and Mount Jefferson, you know, the wind was so intense and the visibility was so low that we, we, you know, I suppose if we absolutely had to get to the top of Mount Jefferson, we could have. Um, but the reasons that we were there to try and do it so that we could have the experience, it was not a worthwhile thing to push for. So we turned yeah. around and came back. Um, yeah, I think I think a huge aspect of that is not just what people are looking at for out of the experience or why they're there, but but just the context in, in, you know, in which they're doing it, meaning people often plan a specific day that they're going hiking and, and the weather doesn't really care about that. <laughs> and, and if that, and if, and if, and if your day, you know, comes and you're up there and you, and you wanted to accomplish something very specific, um, and the weather is really not in, in favor of, of making that decision, it can be very easy. Like you're saying, like, like there, there, there are very few times where it becomes absolutely, unquestionably impossible to do something. It just becomes increasingly more and more difficult and dangerous to do it. Right. You can get to the top of Mount Adams in you know 100 mile an hour winds and whiteout conditions, but you could also get completely lost and turned around and off trail and never make your way out of the. I never, never get out. Right. And that's um. And so. And so it's a kind of a, trying to balance those two, but not but balance them in a way that's much more favorable towards you having a good experience versus you know accomplishing a goal at all costs when all costs is, could be your life. Right, yeah, the ultimate cost. So um, you know, what's uh, 
I guess what's next for you? Uh, you know, your your job up there uh, at Gray Knob goes through uh, through March. Is that right? Right. Uh, and and then what? Are are you off to do? Uh, are you off to do other hiking? Are you off to do other types of trail and outdoor work? Do you feel like this is a this is a career path for you? Um, I think career wise, I'm really not not sure where I'm going to end up. Um, it's hard. It's hard for me to, I guess, imagine doing outdoor recreation work for for my life. Sure. <laughs> but I, but, but for the most part now, although you know, brainstorming other things I could do, I just keep looking for jobs like that. And I think part of it is that I, I love being outdoors and I love connecting with both the natural places and, and experiencing, you know, really amazing places, and also just like connecting with the people that come there because. I think there's a huge aspect of outdoor recreation that's really about the relationships that you create with yourself and with others in right. the context of doing these things and not just the things themselves, like the, the hiking or the, the paddling or the climbing or whatever it is you're doing. Um, so for the time being, I'm, I'm definitely consider, like, considering different types of outdoor um jobs for the summer season for this coming up um but i don't know that that's what i want to do <laughs> like forever right right um and when the job finishes i'm actually going to be the first thing i'm going to be doing is driving to new mexico um I, I have a twin brother who's working in albuquerque for the forest service region the three supervisors no regional office um doing gis mapping work with them and I've never been to New Mexico, been to the parts of the Southwest, but I'm going to draw a road trip down there and um, hopefully go hiking in the Grand Canyon backcountry and, and kind of experience and see a different different side of things, <laughs> see the Southwest desert in spring as opposed to the Northeast mountains in winter. Yeah. Um, and then after that, um, I'm in the process of trying to figure out what I want to do next. There's a, there's a chance that I'll uh, return to working for the Forest Service as a wilderness ranger, um, similar to what I did last summer in Idaho. Um, I'm looking into the possibility of kind of combining my outdoor work with um, the academic work that I did as an undergrad in college um, and, and doing some sort of staffing in a field work position doing uh, geological research which would be um, kind of combine, give a different sort of purpose and, and direction to outdoor exploration and, and uh, kind of mission-oriented teamwork. Awesome. Well, that, that sounds great. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for, for taking the time today um, to tell me about, you know, sort of your work uh, at Grey Knob on Mount Adams with the Randolph Mountain Club. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find out more about Gray Knob and the Randolph Mountain Club at RandolphMountainClub.org, and you can follow them on Instagram at RandolphMountainClub. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at HeritageRadioNetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can find me on email, Harry at TheBrooklynKitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at TheFoodBaller. Talk to you next week. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.